G'day, it's Phil here. I saw on YouTube recently an interview with the English comedian Jimmy Carr where he talked about the importance of both talent and effort in a person's life. Last week, when we talked with Scott Pickett, we learned about what was innate to him and what he picked up in the culture of those around him and the opportunities had about his relentless passion for life and learning and work and subsequently leadership all at the same time he is an exemplar of a continuous learner and unlearner a solution architect he's the sort of man who can have fine dining restaurants and host snack masters and amongst the beautiful bottles of wine on his wine list there's also a long neck of melbourne bitter i love the roundedness of scott pickett i'm really enjoying getting to know him uh, we're going to learn more about him today i can't wait really excited let's go before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Their Circle Global School Research Program continues to design and run large international collaborative research projects that improve outcomes, strengthen culture and support the people in schools who are serving the rapidly changing world of their own communities. To find out more about how you can come on this journey, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. Hey, uh, hi, Scott. Thank you for joining me again. Hey, pleasure, Phil. Scott, last time we chatted, uh, I should actually say last time I had at one of your restaurants, I didn't order the long net, but I was very, very tempted to. Um, well, it's on there to keep it real, and that's absolutely. on a sale and all the things, and you know what, that's something that you learn. The sommeliers are like, oh, we can't have long necks of Melbourne Bitter on the menu. No, and I'm like, absolutely, you can. And I'm like, well, why not? Because absolutely that's what Aussie's like, and that's what exactly. Victoria's like, and aren't we here, that if I want to walk into a restaurant and I want to order a long neck of Melbourne or VB, or I want to have a $500 bottle of red wine, I can. Like, why can we, you know, why can't we? We can. Exactly, exactly. Why have one or the other mm. um, when you can do all of the above? Yeah, all, at the same, all, yeah. all of the above, all at the same time, depending on where we are and what we're doing. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the difference between high culture and, and low culture, so-called. I, I just think there is culture. We learned last time from you that culture is the way we do things. It's that it starts with a self-imposed standard. It's passed on as expectation that we build knowledge and expertise and experience along the way. We just keep doing it better and better and better and better. When we left you last time, you had just graduated from your apprenticeship process. You'd worked under some amazing people. Talk to me a little bit about your journey from being an apprentice chef yep. to owning your first restaurant. Let's let's do that journey, that shall journey, we? So that was probably 15 years. So I worked at the Windsor with Bruno Sedan that, again, was very classical. We wore, you know, full chef's wives. We wore, you know, big toques, you know, big white hats. It was an old kitchen in the Windsor. It was, you know, pretty tough kitchen. There wasn't a huge amount of equipment. It was old school. I mean, we're talking early 90s here. But I'd always wanted to work at Restaurant Paul Bacuse. And that was something that I'd seen since I'd seen a great chef by the name of Philippe Michel in Gourmet Traveller. And I was reading magazines and I was obsessed by food. I would read magazines, books every day, every night. I would dine out whenever I could afford to. So the only pathway to really get to Bocuse, because it was a closed kitchen, was through the Windsor. Because Bruno and Philippe were very good friends. And the kind of deal was you did two years with Bruno 
And then if he put you forward, you go to Baku. So the, the last four chefs to enter that kitchen had all come through Bruno, through the Windsor. It was kind of like you cut your teeth there, you get to a level and then you're ready for Baku. So I did two years there with Bruno and then a spot became open in restaurant Paul Bacuse that was in Daimaru at that stage um, under Philip Michel. So then I transferred over to Philippe and it was a whole different world. I mean, the, you know, Bruno's kitchen was tough. It was loud. It was a five-star hotel. There was functions. There was events. There was room service. There was banquets. There was a, you know, fine dining restaurant in the Grand Ballroom. It was very, very different to going to Bacuse that was 40 seats, one restaurant. And I just remember that Philippe, one day, I was a loud guy, right? I'm still a loud guy. No, no, surely yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Surely loud not. And, uh, loud and brash. I've got a presence, apparently. And, you know, when I arrive in a room. And I remember one of my mates, Freddie, was across the other side of the kitchen. And I called out, hey, Freddie. Yeah, Gab, can you show me how to do this salmon? And because it was a quiet environment, very disciplined, very quiet. You focused on your work. You did your work. That was it. And then you got ready for service. And it was a beautiful environment. Very, very different. And then Philippe kind of looked at me and he called me over and I was standing next to him and he said, Scotty, in my kitchen, we don't yell. I don't mind if you want to talk to somebody, but you go up to them and you politely talk to them and you ask them then, and then you go back to your section. And that kind of threw me because I found it quite difficult because he was very disciplined and I'm not for disciplined in that part of my life. It's it's kind of weird. Some areas of my life, my personality and me as a chef is extremely disciplined but it's not in my nature in many ways. And I'll tell you about this a little bit later too when I went to London. But it was a great environment because you focused on the food, you focused on what you did. And I was shocked at how simple but precise and perfect the food was. So I had about 18 months with Philippe there before the restaurant shut. And then the chef went to open up Langton's by Philip Michel, which is now Chaconi's in Flinders Lane behind the Sofitel there. The first basement restaurant, beautiful Bonnet. And that restaurant was delayed by about seven or eight months. I had about 18 months with Philippe. And then for about seven or eight months, I worked at the Sofitel. And this is the this is probably 97, 98, maybe 99. 99, I went to London. So it must have been 97, 98. And all the superstars in Melbourne food were there at the time. It was run by Raymond Capaldi, was executive chef. But Gary Megan was there. George Columbaris and Shane Delia were apprentices. Um, there was Shannon Bennett upstairs. There was Donovan Cook in, in the restaurant. There was Gabrielle Martin. It was a real breeding ground, but it was tough, brutal, because Raymond was Scottish. So, again, very different to what I, I was used to. And then we opened up Langton's, which coming from a 40-seat fine diner with five chef's hats, where the age had five hats in those days, not three, and coming to this restaurant where we were doing 180 for lunch and 200 for dinner every day. And then they'll give you, like, an example of training, not thinking outside the box and sometimes just being damn right stupid, right? So at Bacuse, we always made one terrine, right? Like we'd make one terrine, we'd make a litre of pork sauce, we'd make a litre of beef sauce, we'd make a litre of veal sauce, and we'd do that every day. And that was just how we did it. That was what we did. But then all of a sudden, we've gone from doing 40 covers like a day to 300 to 400 a day. And we had to switch our mentality and work out how to do this. So we had two terrine moulds. So we'd make two terrines, and we'd do them every day and we're in the shit every night, but do them after service. Until finally we realized if we bought uh, two more terrine molds and doubled the recipe that we could make four terrines and do it twice a week rather than every night. <laughs> but, but it was ingrained to us that that is how you cook. You just cook a liter of sauce, you know, for the day, then you start so, again. 
so so this so I want, I want to pick up on this because we talked about this last week uh, and you, you hinted at this earlier that there's this tension between military discipline yep. that results in precise execution of actions and behaviors learned through repetition so it's drill and skill stuff on the That's one a hand great way to explain it yeah perfect yeah and you, you get into that mode and you just do 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 and then there's the other side, which breaks out of that mould and yep. where you've got a mindset which might be about curiosity yep. or a mindset that might be about wonder or a mindset that might be about trouble and fun and excitement. But is yep. it's, it's a looser sort of environment. So you've got the tight and you've yep. got the loose. Tell me about how you've learned to go from one space to the other. Very, very good question and a great way to put it. And I'll give you an example. So after this, I went to London right after like about 12 months at Langton's. I was dying to go to London and I teed up three stars or three trials. And I did uh, the Monday with Gordon Ramsay in Royal Hospital Road, the Star, a three Michelin star. The Wednesday I did with Phil Howard at the Square and the Friday I did at Marco Pierre White at the Ake Room. Now, the that's, Monday, three, that's, that's three very ordinary names. That's three, three very ordinary, ordinary names. I said, <laughs> look, look, I was pretty lucky that I had a great reference from Bakus, and obviously he's the grandfather, the master of cuisine, and a beautiful reference. And in these days, you know, you actually had to go and send a letter and turn up and knock on the door, get a job. And the Monday we started at 7 a.m. at Gordon's, and it was military. It was precision. It was, there was no talking. There was no fucking around. There was no nothing. It was, this is the standard. This is it. Like I remember grading mushrooms and it was a little Girol mushroom, three kilos between the difference of them being maybe six millimetres and eight and splitting three kilos into that and then cleaning them so that the attention to detail was obsessive. It was military. It was done. That was very foreign to me, even though I'd seen that at Bakus. It was not something that really resonated with with my personality. So like I had a really, really good day, but I found that tough. I found that being that military when I'm not kind of like that, even though that's ingrained in me, it was still very draining to actually operate and cook like that. And then I went to the square on the Wednesday with Phil Howard that had two Michelin stars at that stage. And it was completely the other end of the scale. There was banter. There was 15 guys in there, all 21 to 26. They were having fun. They were cooking. It was rock and roll. And the food was almost just as good. It wasn't as precise as in, in the mushrooms might have been slightly different sizes, but the flavour profiles, that freedom, that creativity was wild. And I remember that whole morning I spent with Phil Howard and we made terrines. We made foie gras, pigeon and truffle terrine. And, and we were cooking and there were flames. It was nuts. And then after lunch service, Phil came out and he said, mate, you smoke. I'm like, I did in those days. And we had a coffee and, and a cigarette on the back fence and a chat. And he said, do you want a job? And I'm like, this is unbelievable. I found my home. I found my folk. I found my kin. Where there was still a, there was still a passion, a drive, and an expectation of like of excellence, but it was fun. And I and I started with Phil, and I was only supposed to get, be there for twelve months, and I stayed two and a half, almost three years. And it was probably from ninety nine to two thousand and one, one of the top three restaurants in London. It was creative. It was loose. It was wild. But we still made sure that every piece of fish that we cooked was perfect or everything we did was perfect, but that extra 1% of actually shaping stuff and all that kind of stuff that doesn't really resonate with me because it, there was nothing fluid about it. It was regimented, was just unbelievable. And I think 
those two guys, Phil Howard and Philip Michel, even though they're very different, were the guys that really inspired me to cook the way that I am today. So, so you've learned you learned a method to go from the tight to the loose, yep. but in going from the tight to the loose and then back to the tight, and I'm going to explore that. You didn't drop your standards. No, no, no. Because because sometimes people will associate being less structured with having lower standards, whereas it's it's not that at all, is it? It's, it's no, no, it's, no, no. Like I could not comprehend until I was at the square and this is how I run and operate my kitchens, which is kind of, it's what people find actually bizarre about me as a person is I can be pumping tunes in the kitchen. We're doing prep, like I'm filleting fish or portioning salmon as an example, but I'm still focused on doing that, but I'm enjoying it. There's an energy, there's an aura, there's everything going with it, but it's just not that structured environment so it's a beautiful creative environment it's fun but then as soon as it comes six o'clock or 12 o'clock for lunch service then the music's off we're serious we get serious when we cook for three hours but sides around that is really enjoyable and it's creative and 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 it's conversational and it's enjoyment so it's just different ways to approach it to the same end result which i found unbelievably inspiring and then you look at that and you're like, well, how can these guys cook like this? Because it's just a different approach. But the passion is still there. The attention to detail is still there. It, it's just a different path. So for you, it's very much about the context, isn't it? Because the purpose remains the same all the way through. Yep. Yep. But it's, it's about the context and understanding about when you're on stage, when, when it's performance time and when there's yep. preparation time um, and understanding that there are different ground rules. Do you find that you're... The, the people who you work with and the people who work for you, that some flourish under that environment and you find that some just can't deal with that exactly. shift from yeah, one yeah, to the yeah. other? It's 100%. It's 100%. Some people really need the discipline. They really need the structure. They really need it around them. They need to just do that repetition. And it's almost in that robotic sense that they've been trained and then you find the creatives and I think it's probably different sides of the brain, right? Some people need that structure to excel. They need it. They need you to, you know, take them every step along the way. Whereas the others might get the end result and the start result, but the middle in between, they kind of find their own way. And so some people like that environment. And then some people, I mean, especially when I got back from London and I was at the point, um, like in Albert Park before I started my own restaurant, it was pretty wild and it was pretty loose. And some people would walk in and go, what the fuck is this? This is a crazy house. There's Metallica banging at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> there is shit everywhere. We are yeah. cooking, you're cooking hardcore. Yeah. And other people actually loved it and embraced it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so can I just tell you a little story? You mentioned Metallica there. So yeah. I, 2015, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer, which was not a huge amount of fun. I'm but sure. you know, it's it's all good now. It's all as people yeah, people on this podcast know. It's it's all it's all it's it's all in the past now. Um, but when I was getting ready to go into my first surgery, um, and I was terrified, as you might imagine, absolutely terrified. And there's this lovely, experienced nurse, and she sort of wheeled me in through the doors after quite a long wait. And uh, you know, nurses just come and put the needle into you know, put the needle inside me and so on. They've opened the door up, and banging out over the stereo system is Metallica nothing else matters. Yeah. And they're all singing to me as I'm going in there and they're wheeling me in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, and, and search and the surgeon, God bless him, Dr. Ruben, he's amazing, yeah. amazing guy. And his team are awesome. They've done remarkable stuff for me, but Metallica, Hey, yeah. 
yeah, Metallica. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, I mean, a very serious situation, you know, with an absolutely intelligent man that's probably a, like one of the finest surgeons in the country. Absolutely, and would flourish in that environment, and that's what gets him up and gets his there it is. going and gets him in the zone to perform, whereas the other surgeons, I think, would not be able to work under those circumstances. That's it. So what we've, what we've learned so far on this little journey, we've talked about standards, we've talked about the continuous learning and unlearning. We, we talked about culture to start with, but what we're starting to explore now here is about climate and environment yeah. and, and understanding where you fit in a particular space and place and understanding that there isn't one way of doing things, but there is a house way of doing things yep. and, and, a, and a set of house rules. So walk, walk me through the process that says, I'm going to start my own place up. Look, I was 35 and I was probably a little bit older than a lot of guys when they start their first restaurant. And I was at the point for six, almost seven years. And I really only planned on being there for two or three, but we got our second hat in year three. So I kind of felt um a commitment and a, and a sense of responsibility to the owners to the kitchen team to where it was to everyone that had worked so hard for three years to get that so i stayed you know two or three more years after that and then really estelle where i'm sitting now is in high street northcote and we're in we're 11 years old now we're into year 12 it's just up the road from home and it was a simple little place that's a scary first step you know it was a little place i like i had an investment property that i'd bought when, when Paul Bacuse closed, we were given a like a pretty solid redundancy package, and it was about fifty grand. Um, and at twenty one, I was just going to, you know, you know, go overseas, party, and just blow it all. And my parents came for the last lunch, and they went shopping that morning, and they found a beautiful apartment in Kensington. And the deal was, I could have half of it to go and travel and party and enjoy, and and the other half I needed to actually. If I could do something grown up with. And so I bought this property and I'd had that by this stage for about 15 years. So there was, it was a little bit of equity in there. And I was like, I always said that that would be, you know, the money that I was, that I was willing to risk and burn to do my first place. So I mortgaged Kensington to the hilt, borrowed everything I had. And I started Estelle and Estelle for the first year, I was still drinking those days, you know, it was pretty wild. The first 12, 18 months of Estelle was pure rock and roll. We would, party every night I would get up at six seven eight in the morning sometimes go to bed sometimes not and start in the kitchen from eight in the morning till midnight there was three guys in the kitchen there was two waiters there was only five in the team and I was a great cook but I and I'd learned a bit of look a fair amount of business along the way at the point but nothing like I was ready to do that first year where I was doing the payroll doing the payables doing my old paying supplies, doing the orders, running the whole business, taking reservations, you know. There was no structure. It was just let's cook, let's go hard and let's enjoy it and let's make sure that the customers do. And that was really, I mean, Estelle was going to be a little thing on the side for me that I was at the point with and I've learned to understand business, bit of passive income. And that lasted about three weeks, you know, while I was doing both of them and I was like, I just want to be in my own restaurant. I want to be here. So I finished up at the point and then I just focused on Estelle full time. Tell me about that moment where you worked out that you didn't want to work for anybody anymore. Can you remember that moment? I can. That had been ongoing. I was probably at the ceiling for about two years, three years before that. And I think, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Rabbi Yani, that owns the Botanical, um, the pub next door to Matilda in the main road, which shared a desk for seven years. And 
I just wasn't present. I wasn't there. And I was like, I just don't want to fucking answer to anyone anymore. I thought I had all the answers. I knew everything. I was better. You know, what are you telling me for? And we sat down and he looked at me and look, we always do this day. He'd come and Rabbi goes, Chefo, yep, I think it's time. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And I knew it was time and Rabbi knew it was time. So we had a real grown up conversation about it. And it was just like, he knew that I was ready and I knew that I'd been ready for a couple of years and you're kind of fighting it. But I, I knew inside myself that it was time to take that leap of faith and actually just have a crack and go for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I can remember having a conversation with the last person that I worked for and I remembered that I was thinking to myself, well, number one, I'd, I'd had enough of board meetings and monthly board meetings and going to them for the time being. But I remember having that conversation with him and, and it was really clear that what was happening was that the, the working for him wasn't working out, but we still yeah. wanted to work together. And we, and we had that conversation. I went, I don't think this is working. And he said, yeah, it's not working. And, yeah. and, and then he said, I think you'd be good as a consultant. I went, yeah, that's great. What's a consultant? And about five <laughs> minutes later, <laughs> you know, and, and suddenly it all unfolded. You know, I rang another of my old bosses that night and said, such and such thinks I should be consultant. What do you think? And he said, well, that's funny. I'm selling my consulting business. I just decided that today. So I yeah. said, oh, great. How much do you want for it? And we agreed on a price and, and shook hands over the phone sort of thing. And then, and then I said, now, can you tell me what a consultant does? And can, t- can you tell me how it works? <laughs> and all? Because I, just, I just knew in my mind at that point that I could not work for anybody else. We're doing, we do projects now and we worked with, we're, we're working with all of the Catholic schools in South Australia at the moment to help them to develop a, a framework for entrepreneurial wealth, a model. I'm not allowed to call it a framework. It's a model for entrepreneurial thinking. And I think the difference between entrepreneurial thinking and being an entrepreneur is that piece which says, I don't want to work for anybody else. I just want to work for myself. And I know within myself that it's now time to do that. And again, you know, I was, I think I was 39 or 40 at that point. So I was about the same age as you went. I was a really loyal company man all the way through. You know, I was was very, very happy working in an organisation and and so on and so on. And then suddenly I went, no, can't do this. Need to do this. I can't do it anymore. I don't want the structure. I don't want to answer to anyone else. I've got a vision. I've got a dream. I just need to, you know, break the shackles and go for it. Yep. That's it. And what's interesting is that even now and, you know, the organisation, you know, that took over that organisation I found and then I converted it into a research centre. And then we've now got this global network that goes all over the world where we can share the results of our our learning about what learning in our time actually looks like and how it's not the learning that used to be and how you kind of get there along the way and what the character piece is in and around all that, which is actually what we've been talking about throughout our conversation so far. This is entirely about the character of learning for our times, today's learning for tomorrow's world. Uh, Throughout that time, the piece that's been on me always is what do we do next? What's the vision? Yeah. Where do we go? What do we do? Yeah. So you've, you've started a still. You're working out some things about yourself. You mentioned at that point, just, just on, in, in, in passing, that you were still drinking in those days. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk me through that as well too? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a step to make, isn't it? Yeah, sure. Well, we had a still and really the first 18 months, you know, we went pretty hard. I'd always, you know, burn the candle at both ends. And then, you know, there was no boundaries, I suppose, almost. There was no one to say, you know, you're late, you got to go home, you got to do this. I own the fucking joint. So I really did what I wanted. And then a few, you know, key people, close people around me kind of said, look, I think you've just got to pull your head in a little bit. And I knew that that was always going to die. Um, you know, that day would come. My grandfather was an alcoholic. You know, I liked the taste of beer a little bit too much when I was 15. 
and I always knew that that point would come from, you know, for me because I've got an addictive, you know, personality. I'm very intense. It's there. Like I'm obsessive. All those great things that make a great cook or a great person in whatever they do, that obsessiveness, that addiction, that, that desire, that full-on burning kind of thing, all those great strengths can also be your great weaknesses as well too. So I said, actually, do you know what? Like at 36, I just couldn't put the handbrake on like normal people could. And I'm like, yep, yep, my day's here. Like I'm sick and tired of this cycle of drinking, being hungover, of, you know, performing, of working. It was killing my soul, my spirit a little bit. So I decided to go to rehab. So I checked into rehab, went to Bali for about two months and I came back and I was just ready. And it was, I was in rehab with seven other people and I don't think any of them are still clean and sober. I'm, you know, 10 years now, nine years or nine years just in August, almost like into my 10th year. And I was ready and I just flicked the switch. And it's one of the yeah, best things, on, yeah. you know, it's one of the best things that I ever did because if I didn't, I can tell you now, that I wouldn't have the business that I do. I wouldn't have the headspace. I wouldn't have the restaurants. I wouldn't have the family and I wouldn't have the people around me. So for me, it was, it, it was easy because I was, I was ready and I can see drug and alcohol abuse is rife in hospitality as it is in many high performance industries. And it's something that I've been able to fucking manage well, but I didn't manage it for 20 years. You know, you know, that was a different time, a different culture in the nineties. I was regarded as like, I was, you know, applauded for being, you know, a hard party or a hard worker doing all these things. Well, whereas now it's very, very different. But the same stresses and pressures are still there for the young uh, guys and girls coming through. And it's just something to be mindful of. Good on you for that. Thank you for sharing. In my mind, what I'm hearing is that that's yet another learning experience. This is, yeah. this is you, the continuous learner and unlearning. You've unlearned that thing and you've replaced it with something else. I think this might be a good place for us to pause if we can, Scott, because we've got to the point where you've, where you've got Estelle, you've got your own joint, you're established there. There's another part of the journey where we go from Estelle to Estelle and Matilda and Longgrain and this and that and the other, et cetera, et cetera, and we might do that next time. So thank you for the conversation today and uh, I look forward to next week. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Phil. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.